You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about the future of alternative investments. Joining me today is one of the leaders in our entire industry, in our space, iCapital's Steve Houston. Steve, welcome back to the show. Great to be with Andy. In our first episode that we recorded, it's time flies. That was episode number 64, and we're at like episode 164 now. So <laughs> time flies when you're having fun, I guess. And I, I'll link to that episode in our show notes. I remember for me, it was a big deal. I was like, wow, I have iCapital on this podcast. I guess I'm official now. You know, it was like a big <laughs> milestone for me. I'm, I'm sure that most of our listenership is familiar with iCapital, but for any who aren't, do you mind giving us a brief introduction to the company? Uh, absolutely. And uh, like I said, it's wonderful to be back with you. And I'm glad we were an early uh, engaged partner on your on your show. Um, iCapital is a B2B business. Uh, we offer technology that allows financial advisors to more easily tap into the alternative investment universe of managers and technology that allows those alternative managers to more easily tap into the wealth management sector. And so those are our two client bases, wealth managers on the left and private asset managers on the right. And we manage about um, about $175 billion uh, through our platform. And we have a little over 100,000 financial advisors who who come directly to our website, if you will, to access those alternative managers, and we work with about 250 alternative asset managers. Um, so that's kind of our our ecosystem, and it's part of this really a super trend of private wealth managers allocating more and more to private markets um, from the public markets. You know, that's they've traditionally um, built portfolios for clients using public market content, stocks and bonds and funds and the like. And uh, there's a a big shift that we sort of sit in the center of where they are more and more allocating to private markets, private real estate, private credit, and private equity. Yeah. uh, I mean, talk about a mega trend and iCapital obviously very well positioned. I think in our last conversation, it really stuck with me. I think it was a great phrase that you used that iCapital has created a, a lot of the connective tissue in the alternative investment space. You know, c- kind of behind the scenes, I guess, for a lot of high net worth investors yeah. maybe aren't familiar with iCapital, but uh, I think you all are positioned to, you know, based on your your clients on the on the right hand and on the left hand, you know, you kind of have your fingers on the pulse of the industry. I want to dive into our main topic today, but but before we even do that, you know, as you have your fingers on the pulse of the industry. How is the industry this year? You know, this has been kind of a, I don't want to say an odd year, but it's been, it's a unique investment environment, you know, and real estate's obviously slowed down. Real estate's kind of the the biggest sector. Has it been a good year at iCapital in the industry overall? Yeah, it's a, it's a growth year, but it's the growth rate came off. There's no two ways about it. Um, You know, our, our assets that we manage through the platform have, have grown quite a bit this year, but but the, tra- the trajectory, you know, has has come off 
And I think really what happened was this year is sort of the hangover from last year. And last year, clients, you know, lost a lot of money in the public markets. Um, and it was one of those odd years where you lose money in stocks and in bonds. Mm-hmm. And it, it definitely impacted how people invested in 2023 and this year. And a lot of things slowed down. Um, that mega trend that you just referenced, Andy, is still there. You know, it's like the first inning probably. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was sort of a hangover a little bit from last year. And then, as you also stated, a certain segment of the private asset world slowed down quite a bit, that being private real estate. And, you know, the interest rate environment and some of the headlines with funds needing to prorate those who are redeeming, you know, it had a little bit of an effect across the entire industry. Now, does the higher interest rates affect private equity as well, or was that was that a more muted effect that higher interest rates had? Well, it did. It, it does sort of indirectly, you know, and it's affected valuations. And you know, if anything, you know, there, there's there's like more interesting entry points today. You know, for those private equity managers that are now deploying capital, you know, the valuation paradigm has changed quite a bit. And so that that sort of excites us, frankly, even for real estate. Like if you're an opportunistic real estate investor and you have uh, you've raised capital more recently and you didn't deploy it uh, more recently, um, it's a really unique opportunity. I mean, there's just there's going to be so many uh, like I actually think this is going to be one of the best vintage years for investors across private equity and and even real estate, um, opportunistic real estate. If you're willing to put money to work, you know, a lot of people get get scared by the headlines and totally understandable. But it's, again, one of those things where I bet if you looked back in five years, it would be a, a, a one of the better vintage years to have been deploying capital. Yeah. And, and certainly in secondary markets, you can see, I mean, I would say valuations are more realistic. Maybe you could say they're more uh, attractive. And it's interesting, you know, where iCapital sits, you could almost view that valuation reset as a good thing, right? Like you all are growing through this period anyway, like, you know, uh, yeah. the headwinds notwithstanding, but probably the fact that there's a little bit of a valuation, re- not a little bit, there is a valuation reset going on. It's probably better uh, PR for the industry overall, right? That that it's just a healthier place to invest right now. I think so. I think so. And the... the- you know, the flip side of that is there's there's a competitive product out there now called, you know, cash. <laughs> and <laughs> um, it, it's just amazing how, you know, a lot of different investment strategies, certainly not private assets, but I mean, venture capital and um, even the public markets, you know, they were they were driven by a zero interest rate environment. And you had to be, frankly, pretty creative on putting your money to work when cash was earning nothing. And now that that's changed and you can earn five, 6% in low risk instruments. And, you know, kind of coming back to what you said earlier about the state of the business this year, you know, that hangover from public market decline last year has, has hurt the industry broadly a little bit this year, but cash as a competitive instrument, you know, people are happy kind of waiting things out. Um, but again, it's one of those things where you you look back and you think, "Gosh, I wished I had invested that year." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, be greedy when others are feelful, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, if you can be a liquidity provider in a time like this, you know, especially in distressed assets, be it real estate or distressed credit, 
you know, you're just going to earn really handsome returns. It's that classic equity return profile for being more senior in the capital stack. Yeah, if only we could all have that, you know, weird psychological bug that Warren Buffett has in his brain, you know, that allows him to be fearless when times are bad and and patient when times are too good, valuations are too rich. It's, you know, human beings where we tend to be our own worst enemies. Um, but 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 absolutely, I agree with you that that this does have the potential to be a great vintage. Yeah. For for capital being deployed this year. Well, I want to shift to our main topic today which is really the findings in the recent iCapital. Uh, this was proprietary research, and, and I'm going to pull up my notes and, and read from this because I want to make sure I get everything, every detail correct. So it was a survey of 400 registered financial advisors in the United States. And I, frankly, I love this research. I'm already kind of borrowing from it. I always give you guys credit, but it was just, Thank you. <laughs> it was full though. It was full of like really important data points, I thought, in 2023. The first major takeaway I had that I want to ask you about, it was in the methodology section at the very end, and I quote, 80% of the survey sample of advisors currently use alternative investments in client portfolios. And additionally, almost all of the advisors surveyed say they plan to allocate the same or more to alternative investments in the coming year. So I'm thinking on the one hand, I agree with you, we're kind of in the first inning of this tailwind. But on the other hand, if the future is alternatives, I feel like, well, is the future finally here? We have 80% of advisors using alts in their client portfolios. Yeah. but And I think that, I mean, first of all, just to, to give the listeners a little bit more context, this was actually an anonymous survey. We didn't come out with iCapital branded all over this. We didn't want to almost like cherry pick or have people self-select. Um, you know, we used an independent agency to go out. Um, and it was a really, you know, pretty good sample set and really good data that came back. There's lots of questions that were asked through that. But I think because it was anonymous, we felt even better, you know, about the the engagement in the survey. The advisors, you know, advisors are using alts. The big thing though, Andy, is, and this came out of the survey as well, they're not using it in a comprehensive way across their book. They're using it with their larger clients, number one. And number two, they're mostly using things like real estate and they're mostly using things like non-traded REITs. And that's great. And it's been a fantastic product. It will continue to be a fantastic you know, product, but it's been, um, you know, you have to kind of peel that question back even more, like how many, how much of their client base is actually using alts? What's the diversity of the alternative usage within that, within that client cohort? Um, so on the headline, you're absolutely right. That's very encouraging. It doesn't, it doesn't suggest that we're in the first inning. It feels more mature. But when you look at penetration and diversification of products, I mean, we're in the first inning for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it almost pertains to this show. When my business partner, Jimmy, he wanted me to launch the Alternative Investment Podcast, he came up with the name. And I didn't really know what I was getting, my, getting myself into because you know I've had people ask me, Oh, you're a podcaster. Oh, well, what's an alternative investment? And I'm like, well, it's anything besides stocks, bonds, and cash. Yeah. And then they'll be like, you mean X? You mean Y? You mean Z? And I'll be like, yes, yes. Yeah, it, there's just so much. And I, I think at some point, it's almost unrealistic to expect any one advisor to really be comfortable with, with you know, however many sub-asset yeah. classes there are in this space. Well, I also think that, you know, we're on a little bit of a mission to change the the lexicon or the or the uh, vernacular that the industry uses which is 
maybe it's not alternative investments. I mean, just those words is like an alternative to what? It's really public markets versus private markets. And the public markets swim lane is where financial advisors and where virtually every client has deployed their, their assets. And the public markets swim lane is where we you know, offer a service and it's hard to access private markets. Um, you know, just by virtue of, of being private, the, the offering process is different. The documentation is different. The education is different. The asset classes and, and the ways one can generate returns are different than what you have in the public markets. And so, you know, really what we're talking about here is, is private markets and, um, you know, how do you access that and, and what are the return streams that investors uh, might expect from that? And really importantly, what do they get out of it when they introduce it into their portfolio? Like, what does a portfolio construction look like? And what are the benefits of adding private market content to an otherwise public market portfolio? Absolutely. And I know IPA, the industry trade group, they use, I think it's PDI portfolio diversifying instruments. And that kind of gets to the heart of, of your point. It that that label for alternative investments kind of uh leans into their one of their main benefits, right? The fact that they diversify the portfolio, although it doesn't really have a doesn't really go off the tongue. So it's like right, kind of like private investment. That sounds a little bit sexier. Um so, you know, I, I take your point, though, is that, you know, the verbiage in this entire space, it actually drives me nuts, you know, even yeah. just trying to define private equity and you get 50 different answers from 50 different people that might. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll even I'll give you, I was on another trade group conference call yesterday and the topic was um, interval funds and. um the, the, what what an interval fund, at least in the current version, holds essentially are investment strategies that invest in private lending and in private debt. And the industry has decided not to call that private lending, which you might understand, or private debt, which you might understand. Instead, they decided to call it interval funds. And interval funds is just a chassis. It's this kind of regulatory structure and I, I don't know why the industry does that. It's like, call it what it is. You know, it's not public bonds or public fixed income. It's private fixed incomes. Call it that. Like, you know. Totally. And I, th I think that is part of the, it's, it's kind of like complexity squared, right? Because you have alternative asset classes and then you have these wrappers, right? You have Delaware statutory trusts, you have interval funds and other intermittent liquidity products. And I think a lot of people do get tripped up on the wrapper and, yeah. but there's a lot of awesome wrappers, right? Like I, I kind of understand why, because. True. Like, I mean, look, MLPs, everybody knows what an MLP is and they've been around forever. That's also kind of a regulatory chassis, um, right. you know, that holds, you know, different things, generally energy assets. But so I don't know, it's, it's just, it's interesting, you know, how the nomenclature can sometimes be a barrier, you know, like if you, if you, if you're pitched an interval fund, you know, I've heard advisors say, well, what is that? And if, but if you say, oh, you know what, forget about the name. It's actually just private lending. You know, you buy public bonds or you buy private. Oh, I get that. Yeah, you're right. And and until we have common language, uh, that, that probably is a, a little bit of a limiting factor in the space. But you know what? I think that's above our pay grade today. Yeah. I, I want to move into some of these strategies and asset classes. This is my favorite kind of poll question. 
Um, I love hearing about what people are putting in their portfolios, what uh, asset classes are, you know, quote unquote popular right now. Um, so I'm going to quote from the report. So among advisors currently using alternatives, 78% invest in real estate. So no surprise there. That's the largest yeah. private asset class. And then 62% invest in private equity, 50% in private credit. That was a little higher than I expected. And 48% in hedge funds. More than one third of advisors said they're most likely to increase allocations to private equity and private credit in the yeah. coming year. So Steve, in your experience, are those two really the uh, the hot asset classes yeah. right now? Yeah, well, especially private credit right now, because um, it, it, it truly is a new asset category that financial advisors didn't have. You know, private company lending was a space that banks were doing and, and the, the big non-bank financials and, and, and private credit funds on behalf of institutional clients. And there was no access point to the private client community for that type of return stream until things like BDCs and interval funds, you know, started to be launched and they continue to be very popular. They continue to do generally exactly what they were designed to do. Um, a lot of the um, uh, content in there again is loans and they're floating rate loans. And so they're kind of getting a little benefit, you know, from short-term rates, um, you know, they're floating plus a spread. And so, you know, the current income, well, that's the other piece of it. You get, you get to see it live, you know, you're getting current income out of it. And advisors love that. Clients love that. Unlike private equity or venture, where you've got to kind of wait it out a little bit. Um, and so the combination of the interest rate market, uh, the fact that it's a new return stream that clients didn't have access to, the fact that it continues to work really well, um, is just fueling that continued growth and interest. Private equity is a little bit behind that, um, but there's still, you know, private equity is so vast. I mean, it's really just like a, it's, it's the U.S. economy. It's the world economy. You know, that's that's the, the public stock market, but on the private side. And so the numbers you quoted are, are accurate. But again, the penetration, you peel that back a little bit, the penetration's not anywhere. It's still first inning penetration. Totally. Now, one question I had about those asset classes, does private equity, like in the iCapital uh, classification system, does that include venture capital? or is Yeah, venture it, it definitely does. You know, private equity, there's different categories of it. There's buyout, there's uh, growth equity, there's venture equity, and we participate in, in all three. I mean, more of our activity is, is in growth and in buyout. Um, and venture, you know, uh, I think... I mean, venture is the ultimate class today where there's been an, a, an economic reset. I mean, the valuation reset in, in venture capital is astonishing right now. Well, it was also astonishing how high it got, um, but it's it's materially reset. So again, probably one of those great vintage years. Um, you know, we're working with a couple of vintage uh, venture managers right now that we'll be introducing in the in the first part of next year. Um, but you know, again, it, it's an uphill battle there in some ways because valuations have come down. People see headlines. People understandably get anxious about it, and so you gotta you gotta really try harder to introduce early stage growth venture to to financial advisors and their clients today. Now, is is venture? I mean, in, in my mind, at least, it's something I associate more with like endowments and institutional investors. 
Has that been something that has been a little bit later to to grow on the iCapital platform that you're seeing, you know, offered to retail high net worth investors versus, let's say, institutionals or family offices? Well, yes and no. Um, we we were introducing venture funds to our client base many years ago. I mean, we're a 10-year-old company, so I'd probably say seven or eight years ago. But having said that, the if you looked at all the offerings that we've had over that period, venture is a very small portion of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the ones that we did introduce were exceptional returns, but the amount of money we raised was not what it was versus private equity buyout funds or private equity growth funds. And again, I think it's just the risk profile, despite the fact that those returns have been really great. You know, it's a riskier asset class and people are going to position that accordingly. Um, so we haven't had as much traction, but it's it's slowly growing. Um, it'll never be as big as those other categories within private equity. Um, but you know, it's it's definitely it's a regular part of our of our repertoire here, but just on a smaller portion in terms of the number of funds that we that we introduce and the amount of volumes of assets that we see going into them. But it's still it's still great that it's represented on your platform, you know, and that it's it's an asset class that advisors now have access to, whether it's on your platform or yeah. others. And thank you, by the way. I think you've settled an argument that I've had with my business partner Jimmy. You know, uh, where he, he questioned if venture capital was technically part of private equity. I assured him it was. So I think you've settled that bet for us. <laughs> the only other kind of footnote is sometimes he uses the phrase private equity real estate. And I'm like, well, that, Jimmy, that phrase just confuses everybody, private equity real estate, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, look, there's there's equity and debt in real estate. So, yeah. you know, he's probably right in that description. Yeah, you know, we need a, we need like a periodic table of alternative investments or just some sort of official classification system. But, yeah. but again, back to the survey, why I'm referring to your old survey so much feel like maybe if there is an objective and authoritative reference point, it might be you guys. Okay. So kudos to iCapital. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to move on to the benefits. You already alluded to this, Steve, already in the conversation, you know, what is perceived as the primary benefit or or the, the most popular benefits of investing in alternatives, right? Because ultimately that justifies why the space even exists, right? If there's not a reason to put alternative investments or private investments in a portfolio, probably the growth disappears. So in terms of the survey, a majority, 60% of advisors expect private markets to outperform public markets over the next 12 months. When surveyed on the top benefits of alternatives, eight out of 10 advisors cited diversification, differentiation, and access to sophisticated products came in at number two and number three. So the top benefit the, that portfolio diversification that I mentioned, IPA is always touting. Number two and three kind of sound a little bit like sales and marketing to me. Like these are sexy. And like, by the way, that's okay. It's okay that investing can be a little bit fun and a little bit exclusive, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, one of the things you mentioned earlier was this uh, um, feedback that we got that actually surprised me a little bit where majority advisors were um, indicating that private markets would outperform public markets. And the reason that surprised me is because how poorly public markets did last year, which right. t- tends to mean that they outperform, you know, in the following year, which is exactly what's happening this year, right? right. Um, but, yeah, and, know, and Steve, so, sorry to interrupt, but like I'm even thinking of public REITs versus private REITs, and I'm thinking, well, public REITs 
you know, the market kind of writes them down immediately in real time and almost yeah. over exaggerates the write down. Right. So that is counterintuitive. Yeah, I think. But then but then when you think about why people are using private assets, the number one point there was diversification. And mm -hmm. if you think about it, you know, the financial advisor community has moved more and more and more to a fee based um, asset allocation financial planning model. And in doing that, one of the key tenets of that construction is to is to dampen volatility. And by introducing private markets into a public market um, asset allocation, you're absolutely um, getting closer to achieving that goal because the streams of income and returns that you'll see in private equity and private real estate and private credit are much more um, stable. And, you know, the, the NAV of the products aren't at the whim of the markets, you know, as we saw last year with public market mutual funds and SMAs and the like, you know, you get redemptions and things get marked down to your point about, about, about REITs, for instance, public REITs. So the benefits of adding, you know, private assets into a public market portfolio absolutely immediately deliver on um, diversification and dampening of volatility. And that's why that was the, it, that was not a surprise to us. Yeah. And I, you know, I go back to, it's interesting. Again, we're at episode 160 some odd of this show. And when we launched it, I talked about the three benefits of alts that most people mention. you know, that first one, the portfolio diversification, second, the potential for alpha, you know, not necessarily that you get alpha, but that you can, you know, historically with endowments and, you know, institutional investors, you yeah. think of how they generated alpha. And then the third big benefit, the tax benefits, because so many of these different wrappers or asset classes come with tax benefits. But increasingly, I'm realizing it really is that diversification is by yeah. far that primary benefit. And then if I'm going to rank a second benefit, I'm actually going to go with tax benefits as a private yeah. investor. Yeah, I think that's probably I think that's probably right. I mean, the, the although I don't want to I don't want to dismiss the alpha piece because it's just so apparent with private equity, especially. And if you are able to focus on uh, or have access to top tier private equity managers, the, every data point that you look at evidences the outperformance versus public market um, comparisons. Um, it takes longer to achieve. You need to be a patient investor. It is illiquid and therefore you have to size it appropriately in your portfolio. But that is a huge, huge benefit um, in addition to diversification and in addition to tax benefits that you'll get out of some, not all, but some of the, um, you know, some of the strategies. Um, and, do you, do you, know, do you think, think that that, I'm sorry, do you think that alpha though, does it, is, is it distributed, you know, to the alternative investment space as a whole? You know, if we kind of average all alternative investors into a group and take the mean, do you think there's alpha versus public markets there, or is it only you know for those who are accessing kind of that top quartile of the, of the best managers? Um, well, it, it's an interesting question if you combine private equity and private real estate and private credit and infra together. I'd have to I'd have to think about that. Um, <laughs> the with private equity, it absolutely is the case, and if you have access to top quartile managers, you're going to do exceptionally well. I mean, it's just I, I I don't have the data at my fingertips here, but I mean, just every um, 
everything that we look at and have looked at for many, many years, you know, it, it evidences that really, really clearly. And so having the right fund selection, the right research partnership, you know, and identifying and getting access to those managers, it really, really pays for itself. The interesting thing, though, when you when you think about alpha, when I think about like private credit and I think about alpha, I almost don't think about it that way. I think about it as having access to a new asset class. Again, private credit was never really made available to private clients, to individual investors. And so, you know, is there alpha in private lending versus public markets? Um, I think the answer is yes, but it's just it's this whole new category that private clients, retail investors and the like just never had access to. You could never put it into a portfolio. Yeah, and maybe we could say it offers enhanced returns relative to its its risk profile. Yes, yes. Uh, but, but but my point is because you know I I don't have that data at my fingertips. I don't even know if it exists. Maybe it does. By the way, if this data exists, I, I would love for someone to send it to me. You know, if you kind of blended all these asset classes together, yeah, took the mean return or the median return. How does that compare to a 60-40 over time? I just I think that would be an interesting question. But yeah. my point was actually that I don't even know that it matters if it performed identically to that traditional portfolio, but added portfolio diversification and came with tax benefits, yeah. which, which really then net net you out to better returns over time, it's, right? It's, I can say this confident, confidently, the returns, if you scrapped your 60-40 and went you know, 60-40 in, in private markets, 60% mm -hmm. um, in private equity and 40% in, in private debt and real estate, you will absolutely have outperformed the public market comparison. You will also absolutely be very illiquid. <laughs> yeah. And and so when we look at and, and you know some of the things that we're doing right now um, and just on the cusp of offering are multi-manager private asset portfolios where we combine private equity funds with private credit funds with private real estate funds. And just by adding that piece to a public 60-40 portfolio, you know, we can evidence very clearly higher returns and lower volatility, like immediate impact. Um, but you just have to come back to sizing it right, you know, yeah. because people can't live off an illiquid portfolio. And, you know, if you're a if you're in the harvest mode or if you need the income and so forth or the liquidity, you know, for for lifestyle purposes, you have to be very careful how you size it. It's a really interesting uh, product idea. I could see where it would create a lot of value because I'm thinking if if I'm Yale or Harvard Endowment, I can take my alt allocation and then slice and dice it accordingly, you know, and and buy huge institutional assets and still be very diversified. It's a lot harder. Like in, unless you're a family office with a hundred million or more yeah. in assets, it is hard to diversify into things like venture where the minimum investment might be, forget about a hundred thousand, it might yeah. be a million or higher, you know? That, that's right. And, and that's look, that's in many ways where we and some of our competitors, you know, come in because, you know, one of the things that we offer are feeder funds. They feed into these larger, you know, private asset funds where somebody can then invest at a hundred thousand dollars, you know, per slug, so to speak, versus what are the stated minimums from the, um, from the underlying, from the uh, underlying private asset managers. But I think when we talk to financial advisors, a lot of them, they understand the need to start diversifying into private markets, number one. 
Number two, they'll they'll look at our menu of choices and they'll they'll be intrigued by the different things. But many times they'll turn to us and say, which ones do I buy? Just can you make it easy for me? Yeah. And part of it is, well, here's an asset allocated portfolio that we've designed, and here's how it will impact your 60-40 stock and bond portfolio. And with this click, you can get access to those managers, right? Rather than having to think, oh, maybe I'll buy this real estate fund and this private equity fund and this venture fund, you know, it, it might be a, an easier way, especially for kind of the middle tier of clients to just get that access kind of with one click. Yeah. You know, that, that doesn't surprise me that feedback that you might get from advisors or investors, like this is all fine. And, and I mean, I even get this like, Andy, let's hear the spiel. Uh, tell me about alts, you know, yada, yada, yada. This is all cool. It's exclusive, but okay, at the end of the day, what do I do? And yeah. by the way, you need to be able to explain it in 20 seconds or less. Yes. Because it's, and that, that brings me, I wanted to talk about the knowledge gap and you know some of this, some of this, what we're talking about with advisors. I was thinking about the knowledge gap and I think I have the solution. We just need to give every advisor like 36 hours in a day, right. 24 <laughs> hours, and they'll have the time to become an expert in all of these asset classes. And this will, this will be easy, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard be, being an advisor. It's hard because there's only so many hours in a day. Yeah. And then you have to think about, um, so I think, I, I think the top, um, or one of the top, um, needs or, or acknowledgements around education and so forth from financial advisors was around portfolio construction. Like, where does this fit? A lot of it's product specific. Okay, how does this fund work? How do they make money and things like that? But what we're seeing more and more from, from like an education and research perspective is like, where does this fit? How do I use it? And that's coming from how financial advisors run their books. They live in the world of model portfolios. Mm -hmm. And if you can't show where private assets, alternative investments fit into that model portfolio, you're kind of banging your head against the wall. And you end up just like selling a fund. And, you know, they're like, okay, interesting story, but, you know, where does it fit? And, you know, how does it fit within, you know, my existing portfolio? And so that feedback, we've been hearing that for years. It's very um, clear that it came through in the advisor survey, but it's also kind of given us the fuel to create more of these asset allocation and model portfolio tools. We, we are actually just about to launch, um, and I'd love to come back and, and talk to you at some point about this, um, um, a new tool at iCapital, iCapital Architect. And it is, as far as we can see, really the first um, uh, portfolio allocation tool that financial advisors can use that will allow them to incorporate private assets into public market portfolios. And you can actually download specific funds and upload a client's portfolio, include that, and it gives all kinds of interesting metrics and illustrations on why you'd want to include private assets into a portfolio, how you should size them, what the benefits of that um, you know, are ultimately. And we think that that's really the future because that's how financial advisors interact with their clients. You know, they they're not really selling products anymore. They're not coming with stock ideas and right. you know, like this one's gonna outperform that one. They're talking about asset allocation. And so that's the world that we are excited to kind of live and participate in. Yes, solve big problems, think holistically. And yeah, I mean, I'm looking at my outline of you know what I wanted to talk about and I have in my notes, 
the knowledge gap, because according to the survey, just one quarter of advisors feel, quote, very knowledgeable when it comes to alternative investments as a category. And I kind of made the, I was joking around, we just need 36 hours a day and this will all be fine. But, you know, maybe it's it's tools like the one that you mentioned that that are the solution, because maybe we're never going to live in a world where every advisor is is quite knowledgeable about private credit or or, or are we? Yeah, I don't I don't I don't think so. I mean, not in, in the next several years. I mean, look, we have lots of research here that we produce around the different types of private credit. And I think it's having an impact. I think it's very user friendly. But again, a lot of those advisors just say, tell me what to buy. (laughs) And like, I I get it, you know, but I don't have the time to go D. I don't have 36 hours handy, as you said. (laughs) So they're looking for the easy button. And, you know, the private asset community can take a page from the public um, asset world where model portfolios and SMAs, you know, this is really what started to like drive activity. Um, away from the single fund sale, away from the single stock sale, and the private asset community, ourselves and all the folks that we work with, you know, are learning from that, need to learn from that. And you need to find the way to, you know, construct things to make the the consumption and the inclusion in a portfolio easier. This tool, you know, I think is going to be, I already know we're in like beta phase with about 300 different advisors right now. And the feedback has been Tremendous because the output from it is tremendous. I mean, they can get it in front of clients, they can show the impact, and they're not slinging a fund, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm not an advisor, but it's like, I, I don't need more homework. Can you please give me something yeah. that makes, makes my life easier? Yeah. You know, not, not a homework assignment. Yeah. Uh, we're almost out of time, but what, one other thing I wanted to bring up that was in the survey challenges these are obviously there's challenges in alternative investments we we have huge growth but the challenges you know you run into these every day various areas the the top two that were cited by the advisors in the survey were lack of liquidity and long lockup periods that one's boring i don't really want to talk about that that one kind of bores me i've covered it a lot i even view it as a feature sometimes rather than a bug but the other yeah, one thank you it's right <laughs> the other one was high fees um, I'm I'm happy to talk about you know high fees. I'm and I'm I'm happy to beat up our space a little bit. I mean, I I will say that active management managing these assets takes good people. Good people cost money because you have to pay them. You know what they deserve, what they earn. Yeah. So I think active management, which I think is required in a lot of these asset classes like venture or private credit. So I think that you know it kind of comes with the territory. At the same time, you know, God bless Vanguard, just in it, our financial space in general, where they've put this kind of pressure on cost. I think really it kind of secretly affects everyone. Like in the back of my mind, I compare everyone to Vanguard and it's, it's not fair, yeah. you know, but I think a lot of consumers kind of think like that. So I think there's more just overall pressure on fees. Do you think that fees are coming down in the alt space over time? Yeah, they are already, um, and there's some like there's some very specific material areas, like especially in non-traded REITs. You know, the old version of non-traded REITs was frankly offensive in the P, the fee the fee paradigm. Uh, the new breed of non-traded REITs, it's very reasonable. the The thing we have to remember with private markets is there's no benchmarking, there's no hugging, and so you're you're really paying for investors to find opportunities. And um, 
the, the fees, you know, as I, I mentioned earlier, if you just compare a private um, asset, asset allocated portfolio versus a public market portfolio, the private asset portfolio would have done handsomely better, even net of fees. Mm -hmm. But the good thing to your point, though, is within that, the fees are coming down. And there's a lot of new breeds of products that I think are also contributing to that. There's this whole new breed of registered private equity funds. These are funds that you can buy on, 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 on they're like open-ended funds. You can, you can um, subscribe to them every single month. They're fully funded. There's no drawdown. And they provide really great access to some of the top managers in the world. This is something that will really be, in our view, um, exploding a lot. This is something we can be talking about over the next several years. And the fees within those are very reasonable. Again, they are still participating in private markets. There is no benchmarking there. They are finding unique opportunities. They need to pay be paid for that. And you want those managers, in fact, to be paid. We've seen in certain circumstances, you know, if you're not remunerating the top portfolio managers, they leave. And a lot of the institutional investors, they ask those questions very specifically. You know, tell me about the compensation for your managers because we want them to stay. We, you know, we otherwise you end up getting a diluted return and there's no one at the helm, so to speak. So it's it's you know, it, the trend is is in the right direction, but I wouldn't be so pushy around fees in private markets right now. That's, you know, that's that's an index game. And thank goodness for Vanguard, because they've done an exceptional job for investors around the world. Yeah, well, and I think, I don't think I'm unique. The, the open-ended private equity funds that you were just referring to, I think that was the same vehicle that I read about in a recent issue of Barron's. They did like a feature article. Um, on you know increased retail access to alternatives and talking about you know private equity finally going mainstream i feel like i hear that once a year you know every year uh <laughs> yeah. pr probably always will uh but but again the baron's author would you know certainly i would think you know kind of a friendly to to the industry but maybe not because he kept talking about fees and i'm thinking this guy's just like me he's comparing everybody to vanguard but yeah yeah look it's natural to compare it to Vanguard. I mean, that's the benchmark. You're getting something virtually free, yeah. um, but you're getting an index that usually a market cap weighted index, you know, thing in your portfolio. And there's just a lot of other things that you can introduce into your portfolio that provide bona fide alpha versus certainly anything that's benchmarked in the public markets, but you have to pay for it. Absolutely. Well, Steve, we're almost out of time. Are there any other trends, big picture trends that you're seeing right now that you think advisors, investors, industry professionals should be keeping an eye on? Keeping an eye on, um, you know, it's, I think that, um, I think this registered private equity space is really going to, is really going to take hold. And I think any, any usage of these portfolio allocation tools is something that we should keep an eye on, because I really think that's going to be the breakthrough to getting more financial advisors and private clients comfortable with getting in that private asset swim lane. And so that's really, you know, it's part of this whole education initiative that the industry and we at iCapital have, but that's what probably excites us the most right now. Absolutely. Well, on that note, Steve, where can our audience of advisors and investors go to learn more about iCapital and all of your tools and resources? Yeah, iCapital.com is, is the place to come. And, you know, we have sales representatives all over the country, well, for that matter, all over the world. And I think if you go there, it's a great destination to start and you can actually begin to log in and register. And then we can, you know, interact with, with um, the community directly. We are a B2B business. So we really, 
we don't really have a big footprint with individual investors, more so financial advisors. And so if you're an individual investor and you're hearing this, ask your financial advisor. You know, we work with the largest financial advisors across the country. It's not just the big wires, it's the regional broker dealers and certainly the independent financial advisors and start to ask them about how to incorporate alternative investment streams more into your portfolio. And we'd love to help in that process. Awesome. And I, I also want to note that you all publish great research, a lot of which we've talked about today. But some of that, I'm assuming not all of it, but some of it is publicly available. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, we're, we have the largest library of private asset research out there across the categories that I just said. And, um, you know, it's very, it's topical. Some, sometimes it's, it's fund specific related. A lot of times it's industry related our asset class related. It's debunking this vernacular that we talked about to make it a little bit easier. Um, we produce a lot of materials around asset allocation. Those get a lot of take up. Um, so there's a, a wealth of information there and it's all, it, not all of it, but most of it is publicly available. Absolutely. And I'll be sure to link to obviously the iCapital website. I'm going to link to the, the prior episode that Steve and I recorded together, episode 54 in our show notes. And I'm also going to track down some of the links to some of this recent research because I think it's really good. All of that will be in our show notes, which are always available on wealthchannel.com. Steve, thanks again for joining the show today. We love your show, Andy. Thanks for including me today. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.